1: Not the donkey or the elephant.
2: This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? There are few, if any, books that I've read in the past few years that have personally resonated with me as much as Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I loved it so much that I read it twice. I love that the book isn't trying to give me superficial solutions to big problems. It doesn't lie to me by telling me that if I figure out the right system, if I only learn the right techniques, if I can only be more efficient with my time, then I can accomplish all my goals. In fact, Berkman tells me the opposite. He says, I'm finite. My life is short. Therefore, I have to choose and choose wisely how I want to spend my life. This is one of my favorite conversations I've been able to have since we started Truth Over Tribe. Oliver and I get into why we have such a difficult time living in the present, why we want to be busy, and what makes life meaningful. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Oliver Berkman, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thank you very much for inviting me. Man, I loved your book, 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. I mean, I would say, I don't know if you'd describe it this way, but it was like some history, some sociology, some philosophy, lots of illustrations, super applicable. I really haven't read a book in a long time that I resonated as much with this one. So here's the thing, I've always been obsessed with the brevity of life, and I know that makes me sound super weird, and maybe (laughs) I am, but I think that's what's behind the title of your book, 4,000 Weeks. Am I right? Can you tell me the story of how you got to that title?
0: Yeah, I mean, 4,000 Weeks is just very approximately the average lifespan in the West. It's actually a little bit more than that, and more for women than for men and all that stuff. But basically, it's just a good round number to give you a sense of how shockingly short human life is. I have to say that although I you know, used that as a title, I think it's good to grab attention that way. In You could argue really that what I'm getting at in the book is not so much the brevity as the finitude. So this is a kind of a technical distinction, I suppose, but it's not so much that life is short than that life hasn't ending that you know our lives on earth have an ending and so it's that that creates the ramifications right that's what makes time precious that's what makes time scarce that's what means that every decision to do anything with an hour of our time or a week of our time is a decision not to do a lot of other things with that same time it's the fact that there is an ending to it that is i guess really the central idea but also expressing it in weeks does make it sound really terrifyingly short as well because if you express it in days you get a lot of them even though they're little and if you express it in years you don't get a lot of them but they're pretty big right. weeks are kind of small and you don't get a lot of them so.
2: well absolutely i mean if you had asked me how many weeks a person who lived to be 80 years old had in their life and i didn't do the math well even if i did the math i'm so bad at math i would have told you something like you know fifty thousand or something i don't know and the number is closer to four thousand. and weeks go by so quick i mean i don't even know what i did last week they just come and go and you don't pay attention to them and you think oh that's just a couple weeks but weeks are precious when you realize you only have 4,000 of them. The Bible says that life is like a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow and I think it's kind of getting at that same thing. So You were kind of starting to unpack this, but I just want to go further. Why is it important to realize that life isn't maybe as long as we think it is, that it does have an ending point? What difference does it make when you come to grasp that?
0: Well, there's this famous line that goes around on the Internet, which I like partly because the Internet can't decide if the originator of it was Confucius or the actor tom hiddleston i find that very amusing that they can't decide but the line is something like i don't think it was tom hiddleston the line is we each have two lives and the second one begins when we realize that we have only one huh and that's a kind of a poetic way of expressing the same idea of this realization of what it means to have a finite number of years it means essentially i think one way of thinking about it is just that there are stakes to what we do and how we choose to use our time. If you lived on Earth in a material sense forever and you just sort of lived to an infinite age, it would, I think, and other philosophers are more qualified than me have argued in the past, that it would make our choices meaningless because the answer to the question "Should I do X or Y with my time today?" would almost always just be like, "Where well, does it doesn't matter?" Because You can always make the choice tomorrow. And so it's that fact of having the finite number that really just imbues everything with the need to take responsibility for making those choices. And I think it also explains, I mean, what I'm getting at in a lot of the book is like all the ways that we mess up when it comes to time, the way that we make ourselves more anxious than we need to, the ways in which we give in to distraction or we end up failing to spend our time on what we thought we really wanted to spend our time on. What these all have in common, I argue, is that they all come from our attempts to sort of emotionally avoid the fact of our finitude, so that we engage with time in ways that make us feel sort of infinite and limitless, or like we're achieving some sort of almost sort of godlike status over our time instead of sort of acknowledging a fully human relationship with our time. And these things don't work because we are humans and we are finite, but they're seductive because they allow us to sort of avoid the emotional discomfort of facing the truth that like, this is it, and we have choices to make, and the choices matter, and things like that.
2: Yeah, it's weird because in some sense, we all know that we will live to be 70 or 80 years old, and that's if things go well for us. Obviously, some people live a lot shorter life than that. So if we were to take a test, we would get that answer right, and yet emotionally, psychologically, we've disconnected ourselves from that reality And I think one of the hardest things for me is to realize that I can't pursue all the things I'm interested in, right? I'm never gonna be able to explore all the things I'm curious about. I just have to limit myself a lot. I mean, not limit myself a little, limit myself a lot compared to the things I'd like to pursue. I read that in Bhutan, which is a country in Asia near India and Nepal, that they have a practice of thinking about death frequently throughout the day. I think if I remember right, it's like five times a day. And I don't know if you've seen these death watches that remind people they're going to die. Is there anything similar that you advocate that kind of reminds us that we really are
0: finite and therefore we really have to make wise choices? That's interesting. I mean, in an earlier book that I wrote, I did spend a chapter looking at the whole idea of memento mori, you know, that this tradition of building reminders of death and mortality into the day which definitely has a long tradition in Eastern traditions and Eastern spiritual traditions, as you mentioned, but also goes back to like the ancient Romans and you know, it's got a Western history as well. Actually, to be honest, where my head is at more at the moment is that it's more of a matter of a shift in understanding or perspective than it is about reminders. The reminders can certainly help. What I'm trying to get at, I suppose, in the book is that ultimately there is something liberating and freeing and empowering about this idea of stepping into our limitation and into our finitude. So yeah, it's absolutely true that you have to sort of reconcile yourself if you're going to adopt this mindset, reconcile yourself to the fact that you're not going to get to do everything that you want to do. It's worse than that. It's that there is just no reason to believe that your time on earth is enough for all the things that feel like they really matter to you for your time on it. These are just unrelated things, right? We are these Extraordinary creatures who are physical and material and limited in our time, but have the capacity in our minds to sort of generate infinite ambitions or feel infinite obligations and pressures. It can be negative or positive. And yet, there's just no reason to believe that there must be some way, some time management method, or some level of self discipline, or some daily routine that's going to enable you to force that kind of infinite quantity into this little finite container. But when you really get that under your skin a bit, when it gets into your bones, there's something like a burden is lifted from your shoulders. That was certainly my experience because for one thing, you do not need to beat yourself up about being unable to do all the things that feel like they need doing because that is off the table. You know, It isn't down to you being inadequate or a failure. It is in fact just the situation that you're going to be able to do a tiny handful of the things that feel like they matter. So then it becomes a kind of a, meaningful and perhaps enjoyable choice of like picking from the menu, you know, which are the things you're going to do, given that the idea of getting them all done is not something that you need to let torment you anymore. So I guess my question then is how do we figure out what matters? How
2: do we figure out what's worth spending our time on our 4,000 weeks on? Because I've always had this other fear that is kind of driven by failure, and not so much by failure that I won't do anything, but failure in the sense that I would do the wrong things. So I have this image in my head, and I think I got it from a book, but I don't remember exactly, but I have this image in my head that life is like climbing a ladder, and you put your ladder up against the building, and every rung of the ladder is like maybe at every year, every choice you make, and you get to the top eventually, and my fear is you get to the top and realize you put your ladder up against the wrong building. The wrong like, building. Like you yeah. did a lot of stuff. You spent your hours, yeah. your days, your life doing things. But you get up to the end and you see it doesn't matter. And you see people, you know, famous people or people that seem to have everything that perhaps culture says you should want. And then they get to the end. And they're like, well, this isn't it. You know, it's the Tom Brady and the Super Bowl saying, well, I've won all these Super Bowls, but I'm not happy. It's Jim Carrey and the Golden Globe saying you win all these awards and you're empty. So do you have any advice for how we figure out what matters,
0: like what we should be spending our time doing? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's one I tend to sort of blatantly avoid giving a straight answer to, partly because I think the most useful contribution i can make in the book or in a conversation like this is very much not to sort of come up with a laundry list and be like okay these are the four things that everyone should do with their lives to have meaningful life because everyone is different and those are very complicated questions but rather to just sort of clear away an illusion and to help sort of clear away this fog that can lead people to think that they're going to get to do most things or everything and to say no no it's much harder than that, but in a sense easier, because all you can do is pick a few things that resonate with you to spend your life on. So it's very much like not my job on some level to tell you what is a meaningful life. On the other hand, I think that one of the things that characterizes the sort of people climbing the wrong ladder or putting their ladder against the wrong building is that one thing you can say about those experiences is that they almost always locate meaning in the future. They're almost always like, I'm going to get to the top and then my life is going to be happy or peaceful or serene or real life is going to begin. And it's the realization when you get there that it wasn't it. A big pushback against that is just to understand that precisely one of the consequences of our being finite is that some degree of joy and meaning has to be found like right here now in the middle of the sort of chaos and disorganization and overwhelm and confusion. And I think that if you do bear that in mind and sort of live in a way that sort of treats the present seriously and isn't always just pushing fulfilment always off to the future, it's actually quite hard to stay leaning against the completely wrong building for very long because like you will, just to push this metaphor further than it will go, either You'll realize that you're leaning against the wrong building or you'll somehow transform the building you're leaning against into the right building through your attitude of taking it seriously and taking your sort of moments of engagement with it as something sacred, rather than all just preparation for some moment when you're going to get the accolade. And then, yeah, it turns out the accolade wasn't really worth it. So... There's more to be said about how you go about relating to the intuitions you might have about whether what you're doing is meaningful or not. But I really feel quite strongly that it can't be turned into a list of five things that everyone should be doing in their life or anything like that.
2: Yeah, I want to come back to that living in the present in a moment. But first, I want to think about the second half of your title, 4000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And you talk about in the book that you were a productivity geek, that you tried to make your life more efficient and therefore more effective. You could get more things done. And I think there's a lie to efficiency, isn't there? I mean, there's some good things about being efficient, and I don't want to minimize those. I want to be efficient in my life. But I also think there's a lie behind the promise of efficiency. Do you agree? What's that lie, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, yeah, there's nothing wrong per se in the idea of finding a way to do some process in your life more efficiently. and. If it's taking you an hour and a half to find your shoes and socks in the morning, then you've probably got some efficiency improvements you can make in that part of your routines. Sure, absolutely. But I think that mostly, and a lot of the time today, certainly when we pursue efficiency and optimization and all these kinds of words that ultimately come down to the same thing, we're trying to find a way to become so fast at processing the inputs into our lives that we could process effectively an unlimited amount. So. By all means, it's great to spend a little bit less time on email, but the person who focuses on becoming so efficient at email that they can handle any volume of email that comes to them, and I have been there, and I have been the person who thought I was going to do this through inbox zero, through right? Various techniques. Yeah. That person will find, or rather, I found that you just get loads more email as a result, right? Most of the things that we try to get more efficient about in our lives today are infinite supplies. So there's effectively, anyway, infinite supply of emails, you could receive infinite number of things you could do with your day that feel like they matter. You're never going to get to the point where you can't think of anything you could possibly do with an hour of your life that would be useful to do. You might not feel like doing it. That's a different question, but there's always going to be another candidate and another candidate and another candidate for your time. So of course, if you get really, really good at getting through that infinite supply more efficiently, you're not going to get to the end of it because you don't get to the end of infinite supplies. You just go through them faster. Right. And so efficiency per se will never be the thing that leads to peace of mind with respect to time, because what you're trying to do when you become more efficient is get to a point where you feel on top of time, you feel capable of handling everything that's thrown at you. You feel capable of processing every incoming input that could come into your life. And actually, the only true way to find peace of mind with respect to time is to realize that that is never going to (laughs) happen. That kind of control or mastery over time is not something that is open to us as humans, I would say. And that peace of mind is something you have to find in the middle of all these infinite demands and possibilities and emails, rather than after you've managed to deal with them all if that makes sense. Yeah, it
2: does, because the lie of efficiency, I think, is that if you practice this system, or if you are really the master of your time, then you can raise your perfect family, have a super clean house, be on top of your job and always advancing up your career, have a great friends and social life, be fit and healthy. You can get all that. It's all obtainable if you will just be on top of it. And everybody comes around and sells you their program for having the most effective, efficient use of time. But no matter what you do, you always bounce up against this idea that no you're finite and no matter how on top of it you are you can't have everything and so in the book you talk about making a list of things you're gonna fail at what are some of the things you're gonna fail
0: at have you decided your list well I certainly struggle with this but I have a few examples I think I probably need to choose some bigger fish to fry in that respect but I mean yeah, the basic idea here is just that like being finite means that you're going to fail to do most things and it's actually i think a much more constructive approach at least in some cases to decide in advance what those are going to be right because to give a sort of cliched example if you've got small kids and you work hard and you know you're involved in your community and you're constantly trying to also have an incredibly tidy home every time you go to bed and the living room is still a mess, you're gonna be like, I've failed again. If on the other hand, you say, you know what? For the next year, this is just can't be a priority. I'm spending my time in meaningful ways. It can't be a priority to keep the house in a sort of perfect condition. Then you don't torment yourself. You don't get to the end of the day and consider that to be a failure because you didn't set out to achieve it. Another very small example that I sometimes give because it is sort of close to my heart is like, there is some part of me that wants to be a good cook It's important to me in some sense to being part of my family that I should be able to cook good, impressive meals. Now, I think I'm fine at cooking a basically nutritious dinner when that's my job, but certainly nothing imaginative. And, you know, that would be nice. It would be a meaningful thing to do with my time. It's not completely bogus as a way to spend my time. But it's just not significant enough compared to the sort of three or four things that I do think are completely centrally important to my life having meaning and to my making a contribution and so it's been very freeing for me to be like you know what maybe when my son leaves for college or something maybe that's going to happen then but it's just off the table for now and it doesn't bug me because i'm not really trying to make that one of the things that i spend my time on
2: well i like how you say it that you kind of give yourself permission to fail in these areas And therefore, you don't get stressed out about them. And those lesser important things don't distract you from the more important things. Because if we just make a list of everything we want to succeed at, then that list gets long and long and long and impossible and, you know, makes us think we're infinite. But if we say, I can do these things and I can't do these things, that's wrestling with our
0: limitations, our finitude, as you say it. And it isn't because the things that you decide not to do are not meaningful. Right. As you say, that's crucial. We are choosing among things that matter here. We're not just trying to find a way to do everything that matters and get rid of all the stuff that doesn't really matter. We're accepting that sacrifice that is like, this is the kind of bittersweet thing about being a human on the earth, like a load of stuff that totally matters, you're not going to get to do. And I think there's something very, very helpful in being willing to look at that directly. So I'm reading your book, and what comes in my mind as I'm reading it
2: is this illustration I'd heard. I want to say it was from Stephen Covey years ago. Maybe he got it from somewhere else. I don't know. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading, oh, he's going to bring up how we need to put the big rocks in first and let the small rocks go in around it. So the idea there uh, that Stephen Covey popularized back, I think, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was the idea that if you take the most important things and put them in first, then all the lesser important things you can fill in around your life. And so he had imagined kind of a fish tank or something that you were putting the rocks inside of. What was remarkable, as I'm thinking you're going to say it, you do say it, but you put a whole different spin on it. Whereas I had seen that as something positive, like, okay, this makes sense. You then say, oh, no, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. So why is that the wrong way to think? We shouldn't put the big rocks, the most important things in first, and then the lesser important things in afterwards. Why is that wrong?
0: Well, I don't think it's wrong to put the big rocks in first. What I think is wrong about that example is that it clearly implies that if you follow this rule, you'll fit all the big rocks into the jar. And as I try to say in the book, like that's only because the hypothetical guy in the story right. has brought into the classroom or wherever it's happening just the number of rocks that he knows can fit into the jar. And I think the real problem of time management, I mean, putting the big rocks in and not the small ones is important, but the really important problem of time management for most of us is that there are just far too many big rocks. There are just too many big rocks to ever have a hope of all fitting them inside that jar and so the really important question is you know how are you going to choose among the big rocks and perhaps even more important than that is like how are you going to learn to be okay with the fact that there are some big rocks a lot of big rocks that don't get into the jar and that that is just what being human is
2: yeah I like the way you put it there because In the illustration, someone has already decided what the big rocks are. So that's the hard decision. Yeah, once you figure out the big rocks, then of course put them into your schedule first.
0: But that's the easy part compared to figuring out what the big rocks are. And And also, it's not even just figuring out what the big rocks are, but it's figuring out there might be 100 big rocks and there might be space in your jar for seven. Right. So then the other question is like, what are the 93 big rocks that are not getting into this jar? And obviously, you're not usually going to be quite so aware of things as to be able to list 100 of them or something. But it's more just that spirit that says, I'm going to pour my finite time and energy and attention into some things that I really know in my heart make a big difference and are meaningful. And I'm just going to yeah, cut myself some slack, give myself endless permission to not manage to do all of the things that I can think of that feel meaningful. Which takes us back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago, is what are you going to fail at
2: or what are you going to let go of so you can do the important things? But it seems like in today's world, we're exposed to more and more opportunity, our phones, the internet. It just feels like life is bigger, and we are exposed to more and more opportunities. And I watch people who are younger than me, I mean me, but people who are younger than me really struggle with the paradox of choice. They are confronted Mm -hmm. with all these possibilities that they could spend their life doing, all these experiences they could have, all these places they could live, travel to. And I wonder if kind of the paradox of choice that the more options you have, the more you're dissatisfied with the option you chose, is what's kind of leading to some of the anxiety that people are facing you know you even hear about quarter life crisis it used to be a midlife crisis now there's a quarter
0: yeah. life crisis do you think there's something to that yeah absolutely I think the paradox of choice is central to all of this there's a slightly different spin I want to put on it or something it is that sense that maybe you know you can't enjoy the choice you made or you can't focus on the choice you made because you're sort of tormented by the thought that some of the other choices were better ones and in the classic sort of study or whatever it is I think it's like varieties of jam in a supermarket or something like if there's only one or two to choose from you choose one and you enjoy it right. if there's hundred to choose from you're constantly like ah, oh, maybe one of those other ones was really <laughs> really good but it's also just that that sort of specter of limitlessness is aroused in those contexts right it's like well we're really good to be able to try them all or to make a really exhaustive choice among them all and these are just things that you can't do as a limited human. You have to sort of make choices with a lack of total information about what alternatives you are choosing between or about how the choice is going to turn out. Yeah, I think that this idea of the paradox of choice is very closely connected to this idea of the sort of tormenting mirage of this idea that we could maybe be limitless and exhaustively make the perfect decisions about everything and experience everything that was out there to be experienced and all the rest of it. I don't know how much you want to get in sort of like a religious lens on this, but I do think there's something very useful about the language of sort of wanting to try to take the place of God over your time versus stepping more and more fully into the reality of your humanness. And it's actually very liberating to do the latter. You know, it feels like it's a constraint, but it's actually the opposite of constraint. It's sort of, you can't be free from time in that godlike way, but you can be free in time by sort of, being wholehearted about the fact that you don't get to choose from everything you don't get to sample everything you don't get to know for sure how things are going to turn out
2: it's counterintuitive because in some sense if you ask people would you like to have more choices about what you could do with your life or what kind of chocolate you'd like or you know dessert breakfast whatever we'd say yeah we'd like to have as many choices as possible but it turns out that the more choices you have the less happy you are right
0: and it's always a case of balance as well isn't it because it's like I live in the UK and I spend a lot of time in the US and so I end up sort of setting myself against implicitly a certain kind of extreme of Anglo-American culture here that says more choices, more freedom. Mm -hmm. Obviously you don't want to live in North Korea either. And that sort of complete elimination of choice is a bad thing. And the fact that we have more choice than we used to, and that, you know, the choices spread among more of the population that used to, is on balance a good thing. It's just that the idea that peace of mind lies with more and more and more and more of it, always more of it. That is the thing that is, I think, completely mistaken.
2: So I want to go back to what we mentioned earlier about living in the present versus the future and do it in terms of kids. My kids are adult. They're gone out of the house. I think if I remember from the book, you've got younger kids. But what I've noticed is when my kids were younger and even now as I listen to parents talking is that and I'm sure I did the same thing, but it's just obvious when you listen to other people that we're always looking for the next stage. So, I can't wait to get pregnant. I can't wait to not be pregnant. I can't wait to my kid to be able to walk. I can't wait for them to be able to talk. I can't wait for them to go to school so that I can have some order back in my life. Now I can't wait for them to drive. I can't yeah. wait for them to kind of move on, be off our payroll. That's a big thing, right? right. I I'm no longer. And we're always looking forward to the next stage as parents instead of just enjoying the stage that you're in now. And there's something about the human condition, though, because it's not just about parenting. I think it's very obvious there, but it's not just about parenting. What insight does that give you into the human condition that we're always looking for the next thing and never enjoying the present moment?
0: Right. And I think another sort of facet of that that also comes up again in a clear way in parenting is we're looking at the next thing, but we're also sort of instrumentalizing the present so that, you know, if you sort of look inside and ask if you're being a good parent to a child, often what you're really asking is, am I doing the things that guarantee them the most chance of a successful adulthood or teenagerhood if they're younger than that? You think about, like, if you get a choice of schools to go to or how they ought to be spending their leisure time, if you have any say over this matter, what you're trying to do is decide, am I using this time well for some future purpose? So... It's not irrelevant, and you shouldn't abandon that. But obviously, if you really double down on that, you end up looking at every moment of the present in terms of its value for some future moment instead of being present in that moment and asking whether your child is having a good childhood for its own sake, you know, for childhood's own sake. And then, as you say also, we're always wanting to get through the current bit to get to some alleged moment later on when it's going to be somehow better. I think what all of this has in common is that... a sort of a psychological flinch it's a reluctance to sort of say actually these are the days and the weeks and the years of our lives and that if we're going to find meaning at some point we're gonna have to do it in a present moment if you always postpone then it's an unhappy way to live in certain ways because you're always waiting to be happy or to see if your parenting worked out or to wait for your business that you work at to finally bear fruit or something like that But it's actually very sort of comfortable in a way as well, because it enables you to not have to quite face the music, if you see what I mean. You get to say like, well, real life is later. Right now I'm just preparing, so I don't need to really take super seriously how meaningful it is. And so there's a certain kind of weird comfort in that. And meanwhile, it enables you to sort of think about the future as this perfect time when you're going to be completely in control and have perfect control over everything. There's a lovely quote which I quote in the book from John Maynard Keynes, The Economist, who says that the person who lives for the future in this way is always trying to secure for his actions a spurious and delusive immortality. And the quote is something like, you know, he doesn't really love his cat, but only his cat's kittens, nor in truth the kittens, but only the kitten's kittens, and so on forever and ever and ever. And you never quite cash out your life, right? It's always the next thing. But that makes you feel kind of powerful because it's like you have this notion of time stretching off forever into the future and you're you're on your way. And so it's comfortable, but actually... Life is finite and you're going to have to find some meaning in the present at some point if you're going to have a meaningful life.
2: Okay, I just love that what you said there in the last few minutes because there is something powerful, there's a lie that we tell ourselves that when we get to this stage, then we're going to have it, like a stage in business or family life or whatever, that then life will be good. And it keeps us from having to wrestle with, no, I've got to find meaning and purpose and goodness and joy and whatever, right now in the middle of being in school, in the middle of having a toddler, in the middle of starting the business. And if I can't find it now, I won't find it in the future, either. So let's stay on this topic of the human condition for another second. There was a belief that in the past, there was a belief that in the future, we wouldn't have to work as much because we would have all kinds of time-saving devices. And there was this kind of fear of, "Uh uh-oh, what is everybody going to do with their free time? And you mentioned in the book, like people in their homes is there were labor-saving devices to clean homes or whatever. Would we have more free time because we had these labor-saving devices? And you said, no, the standard of cleanliness just went up. And obviously we've filled our life with. With work We work maybe more now than ever before, I don't know. but again, I think that tells us something about the human condition. I mean, we don't want free time is what it tells me. right It tells me that somehow we are committed to creating a system where we are always super busy. Yeah. Is there anything you could unpack there a little bit more that we could learn from ourselves? and in the process, would you tell us the story of the Mexican fisherman?
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah I mean, I think busyness is such a fascinating concept to me anyway, because the kind of busyness that we have today is this feeling that there's more that we absolutely must do than that we ever could do. And that's the feeling of being overwhelmed, right? It's the sense that just to get through the day and be minimally acceptable to the world and earn your place on the planet, whatever it is, you've got to do a greater number of things than actually you can do. And that's a really depressing and despair inducing place to be because it's like you get up in the morning and it's already over. Your chances of winning the day are already over and yet there is clearly this benefit of being super super busy as frederick nietzsche was one of the first to notice you don't have to stop and think about things like you're just on the treadmill you feel like you've got to do it you know it may well make you feel like you're in demand and you're needed you know the fact that people are asking you for so many things and you've got so many demands on your to-do list and so there's a certain kind of again comfort in being in that kind of overwhelmment. But because it is an attempt to get your arms around an infinite amount, you're never gonna manage to get on top of that whole supply and be completely free from overwhelm just through sort of mastering your time. And in fact, you know, what you have to do instead, as I sort of say again and again through the book, is the skill to learn is not how do I get through all the things on my to-do list. The skill to learn, if anything, is how do I let my to-do list be quite long and put it to one side And first of all, spend an hour on something that I really care about, even knowing that that to-do list is waiting for me. And yet one of the stories that illustrates this, that you wanted me to retell is just this very hackneyed old story about a New York businessman in this story, who goes on vacation to Mexico and gets talking to a fisherman. And he asks the fisherman how he spends his days. And the fisherman says, well, I fish for a couple of hours in the morning, but then I spend the rest of the day drinking wine in the sun and playing music with my friends. And the businessman is kind of appalled because of the inefficiency of his lifestyle. It's like, listen, if you just pushed yourself and you fished for like eight, nine, 10 hours a day instead of two, you could like put a bunch of capital away. You could hire a whole lot of other fishermen. You could become the CEO of like a fishing company. And instead of doing it all yourself, you can make millions and millions eventually. And then you could retire early. And the fisherman says, what would I do then? And the businessman says, well, then you could spend your days sitting in the sun, drinking wine and playing music with your friends. Just to spell it out, it's like you've gone through all of that self-punishment <laughs> just to get to the thing that you already could have had at the beginning. There's you know, there's criticisms to be made of that story. There's something to be said for hard work and long-term thinking and deferred gratification. But the essence of what it means to me is just like it is so easy to miss opportunities for meaning and happiness in our lives now because we are apparently building up to some future point where we're going to have all this happiness and meaning. I think that's why, you know, in a way, I probably couldn't have written this book until I was in my forties, because there is a bit of a thing that happens towards the middle of life, precisely because you realize that like, you can't go on forever through life thinking that the real time is coming in the future because the future gradually gets (laughs) shorter, doesn't it? As you go through your life. Right. So there's so
2: much there. Thanks for retelling that. I love that story. I think we want to be busy we crave it, we need it. Maybe it's for status, like you said, to make us feel important, maybe it's to numb ourselves, maybe it's to avoid thinking about certain issues. I'm not sure, I'm sure it's different for every single person. There's not just one story that you can impose on everyone, but we crave busyness and we tell ourselves a story that if we're busy now, we will be able to enjoy the fruit of that at some point in the future. But I think we've probably all known people who lived that way and then maybe they died early, or maybe they got dementia. You know, they never got to enjoy the fruit of their reward, so again, it pushes you to find meaning and joy now. So you mentioned religion a little bit ago. If you don't mind, let's go there for a second. Sure. I'm a Christian. I couldn't tell from your book what your faith commitments
0: are. Do you? have any or no i just curious as we explore this no i've described myself as christian curious a couple of times in recent months in terms of my heritage i'm jewish on my father's side and i was raised as a quaker actually so and then i've spent a lot of time in sort of vaguely Buddhisty things as well and also interacting with christianity i'm really interested in some of the resonances between christianity and the ideas explored in this book though so um i'm just a bit of a floating around person in that respect but very happy to talk about it
2: well thanks i appreciate your willingness to go there So one of the things that has made sense to me, but I'm not sure it does to you, and so I'm kind of curious to hear your pushback on it, is the idea that if there is no eternity, this is what I've kind of bought into, if there is no eternity, then that saps the meaning out of life now. So I think of Tolstoy, who had, by the time he was in his 50s, had written his major works that we've read or at least familiar with. And he has this crisis where he thinks, well, if this is it then nothing I'm doing matters because it's all just going to come to an end. There's no greater story it's a part of. And what's it matter if I do this or that? I take it that you don't think that there needs to be a bigger story, i.e. an eternal story to make this life have meaning, that you would disagree with Tolstoy, at least the way I've told the story. Hopefully I've got it
0: accurate. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And there was a one review of my book at a Christian site that put it in a really lovely way, said something like you know the subtitle of my book is Time management for Mortals and it basically said like if I really thought I was a mortal then this book would be like absolutely perfect. it would be my Bible but I'm Christian and I'm not mortal, not in the sense that at least we sometimes mean by that phrase and so that does change things. But to get back to the question that you're asking specifically, I mean you're saying does it does it require that there be an eternity?
2: if there's no eternity, if there's no afterlife, if there's no continuation beyond death, can we find meaning here? Because I disagree with the guy who said that your book would be the Bible if he was mortal. I mean, I think your book pushes us to make really important decisions, but it just makes me think that the reason that I have hope that I can do a few meaningful things here is because they will mean something after I'm dead.
0: And if they don't, then what's it matter? I'm not sure I'm quoting him accurately. I probably shouldn't. Uh, I may be putting the comparison with oh, the Bible into his into his mouth, which sure, is a hubris in the extreme. What I think is that I think I do disagree with the idea that there has to be the eternal for the finite and limited to have meaning. But I'm also coming to understand that, at least a lot of Christians, I don't know about you, mean by eternal life and eternity something that is at least compatible with my views and understandings. It's not like a sort of massive contradiction with them. It seems to me that very few people want to talk about eternal life as meaning, well, we die, but time continues in much the same way on the other side of death, you know. If you were literally talking about, you know, more and more and more days going on forever, then actually I think not only do we not require those for meaning, but that would actually threaten meaning for the reasons that I discussed earlier, right? If there's always another day, to make your choices on earth, then life becomes meaningless. And so if worldly life, if earthly life were infinite, if eternal life means something a bit like that, then I don't really understand the argument. If it means that we are all part of something much bigger than ourselves, that will continue after our deaths and that was here long before us. And that's a viewpoint that, you know, I think is probably does reflect some Christian understandings of eternity, But you can also characterize it in the sort of eastern religion context of just being like you know reality is this infinity of processes and after we've gone our atoms continue in the same sort of swirl of cause and effect however you interpret that i mean that seems like also to be true right it just seems like there is something much much bigger than my life and it will continue beyond my death and then it's an interesting question whether it needs to exist in order for my actions to have meaning but i think at least in that very loose sense it does exist so i don't know maybe i'm slightly circling around this question but i think what it comes down to is i don't want to insist on a definition of meaningfulness that says like you know cooking a meal for my child or helping someone who's suffering or doing something that we all agree is like obviously meaningful. I don't want to say that that absolutely requires a bigger context in order to have been a meaningful use of that moment. I want to say there is meaningfully something much bigger than that moment, but to make it a precondition seems to me to detract somehow from the meaning of that moment. But I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not given a very coherent answer. I'm not sure. Well, it's just fun to explore it and learn from each other. Do you have any
2: responses to that? Well, I think Christians have different understandings of what eternity looks like. And there's even a debate within Christianity what it is. I'm part of the team that thinks that heaven is not some place out there that we float on a cloud and sing hymns, but instead is a transformed or renewed earth, that when Jesus returns, he is king over the earth, and that we return to the Garden of Eden to accept expanded and beautified and renewed, and so we have a world without sin, people without corruption, uh, nature without sin, and so that we do get to live a sense of endless days. In light of God's presence and each other without the corruption that sin has caused, war, hatred, jealousy, all those horrible things. And so I think that when you go to work as uh, maybe a person who's building business, I think businesses are in our future, you know, on the other side of death. in. Heaven with a transformed earth. I think it makes sense to take care of the world, the creation, because it survives our death. And I think if everything just comes to an end, then there is no God. Then it's like, well, at least this is the way I understand it. I could easily be wrong, but then we're just atoms. We're just chemicals. And you or me or our kids or our friends, our neighbors, we don't really love, we don't really show kindness these are just chemical reactions that take place and i'm probably oversimplifying maybe nobody believes that quite that caricature i'm just trying to process it here with you
0: yeah no we're not going to resolve this in the course of this podcast but no. i guess that for me the question that comes down to saying well and i'm sure that these are sort of ancient theological debates that i'm oversimplifying and caricaturing but like to say that i as a personal part of reality will come to an end does not seem to me to be the same as saying that everything comes to an end in the sort of nihilistic way that you're pointing at there. So I think I probably do believe that as an individual, I will come to an end at the end of my finite time. But I'm not sure that that needs me to say that that's the same as everything coming to the end. I suspect I'm tending towards some kind of understanding of eternity here, which yeah, is a sort of Some kind of idea like the ancient Stoics identifying reality and God and something like that. I don't know where that leads. But I don't want to say that just because I'm not continuing on, that the thing that I'm part of and that have been adding my meaning to during my life isn't meaningfully eternal in a different way. But I'm at the absolute limits of my knowledge or understanding of anything. So, you know,
2: who knows? At the very end of the book, well, not the very end, because you end with some really practical advice, practical help, which I super appreciated. That's what I meant earlier, that the book 4,000 Weeks is its sociological, it's historical, it's philosophical, but it's super practical. But right before you get to that stuff, you talk about hope, and you quote a climate activist who I wasn't familiar with. Derek Jensen, I believe is his name. And I think if I understand it right, you quote him positively as saying that hope is a negative, like hope can work against us. And I think that just kind of, again, kind of staying on the same conversation goes against everything I believe that if we don't have hope, what's the point? But can you unpack that a
0: little bit? Yeah. And listen, I'm being... And I think Derek Jensen is being blatantly sort of contrarian in that sense. I think there are different meanings of the word hope, and I wouldn't want to be supporting the idea that all of them are bad. But I think what he's really getting at there, what I take from him, is that to build your life around hope, in many contexts anyway, maybe leave aside the religious one for a moment, but to build your life around hope in many contexts is to place your power outside of yourself. It's to say like, well, I really hope... My candidate gets elected. I really hope things get better in this industry or this part of the world. I really hope that the younger generation can make less of a mess of the world than we have, or a million different things. Or I really hope that my ship comes in and I have a meaningful life in the future when I'm wealthy, or it could be anything like that. I hope my kids turn out okay. And in every one of those cases, I think Jensen would argue, and that's what I was sort of getting at at that point, you are making the meaning of your life and the sense of peace of mind and sanity and joy and all the rest of it dependent on something happening, probably at somebody else's agency at another time, instead of being right here now. And so there's this lovely image, you know, whatever you make about his particular beliefs in terms of climate activism, he says, like, when people say, why do you work to preserve the habitats of wild salmon, unless you have hope that you're going to be part of saving the planet in this way? He says, I do that because you don't need hope. I do it because I love Salmon and I love the habitats of salmon and you act out of love. I think he's right in a sense that like you don't care for your children solely because of that quid pro quo that they're going to turn out well, right? I mean, you do it because you love them. You do it because that moment of connection is valuable in and of itself and doesn't need placing on this external foundation of like it's all going to lead to something. But I can well imagine that this sits awkwardly, especially with Christianity, because Christianity is such a sort of temporal religion. It is about things that, from the Christian perspective, really happened, and things that will really happen. It's not about sort of a general kind of bearing or an attitude to have to the world, which I think some Eastern religions can be. They would sort of remain coherent as beliefs, even if none of the stories around them happen to be true, whereas the stories are sort of completely the essence of Christianity as I understand it. And yeah, I can understand that because that is a temporal thing with a past and a present and a future, you do need to be thinking about the future as an integral part of why you're doing what you're doing. Then again, there are passages in the Bible, aren't there, famously, where not giving thought to the morrow because the morrow will take care of the things of itself and to be present here in the very moment is what we're advised to do. So.
2: Yeah, you know, the Bible's an interesting book because, like you said, it's intention that you don't put your focus on tomorrow. You live in the present, so therefore you don't worry. On the other hand, in the same passage, Jesus says, but you lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. So you make sacrifices now, whether it's financial or time or whatever, emotional, with the idea that that'll pay off later, that there's something to look forward to and a hope beyond your life now. Hey, Oliver, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and we haven't even touched on everything i would love to talk to you about you talk about (laughs) hobbies you talk about distractions in the book you talk about how this disconnect when we have free time but our friends don't have it and how important that is so there's Mm -hmm. so much more to investigate in this book than we had a chance to talk about i just encourage people to pick it up and read it thanks so much for your time i super appreciate it
0: it's been my pleasure thanks for such an interesting conversation